We are called, as we continue our worship, to a time of fellowship around God's word. We get this also out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Even the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, and you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God has enriched all our lives because he is the one who has given us faith to trust in him. This passage tells us we lack no spiritual gift, and that's the first fruit or the foretaste of the second coming of Christ. And now, this time of fellowship is a time where God's word will remind us of this truth that Jesus is coming again. God is faithful. He will sustain us to the end. And that's the purpose of the time of fellowship here around God's word, to help sustain us till he returns. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Malachi, chapter 2, as well as in your bulletin, locate the outline and use that to take notes. So we began this last week, and we did not uh, finish it, Lord willing. We will finish it this, uh, uh, this morning. Uh, two, 17 through uh, 3, 6 is the pericope. Unfortunately, they chose, uh, obviously, centuries ago to put a chapter break between 17 and verse 1. But 17 is the beginning of the next uh, section. So we're looking at 17 through 3, 6. And uh, brothers and sisters, this is God's word. And as this is the word of, of our king... It's appropriate for us to stand out of reverence and respect at the reading of his words. So let me invite you to stand together with me. Hear another word of our Lord. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Um, And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you uh, delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the, the day of his coming? And who can attend or stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old as in former years then I will draw near to you for judgments 
And I will be swift, a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow, the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of coming here this day and fellowshipping with you in worship. This glorious time where you condescend and meet with your people. And that, Lord, where we have the privilege and the opportunity to express to you our love and devotion. And then, Lord, to receive from you, to feast upon this fellowship meal, your word. God, we pray you'd feast us, that, Lord, you would richly bless us, that you would nourish us in the inner man or, or woman, and that, Lord, we would indeed um, be nourished this day in Christ. Bless this time, O oh Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please uh, be seated. <coughs> the passage at which we are looking addresses a facet of God's nature. Specifically, his justice. Now, when you and I think of God's justice or God being a just God, we tend to think in terms of fairness. And and that's not a very good start, to be honest. It's not very good. Because our measure of fairness is a lot different from what, biblically, we might call uh, fairness. But we tend to think in fairness. You know, that's not fair. You know, God, why do, why do bad things happen to good people? That's not fair. Or the converse, Lord, and this is the issue here, why do good things happen to bad people? It's not fair. So it's, it behooves us to understand God's justice from the perspective of Scripture. And when we do that, we see that indeed God is just. Psalm 711 says that God is a just God. When we say that God is a just God, what does the Bible mean when it says God is just? Well, the word just in the Bible means that God's um, uh, um, actions are in perfect agreement with his nature. Okay? Brothers and sisters, that's what we're, we're saying. As a judge, everything God does is the exact um, uh, correlation to his nature. What God is, is always what God will do. An unjust God will be a God who acts contrary to his nature. And so if you you want to understand what it means to say that God is just, we have to understand his nature. Well, that is a massive topic. God is an infinite God, and therefore to say that that um, God acts according to his nature, we're going to spend eternity growing in our understanding of his nature. Therefore, we'll be growing in our understanding of his justice. However, thankfully, justice revolves primarily around one facet of God's character, and that's his holiness. Now, when you and I think of holiness, I hope by now you don't think of moral purity. We tend to think of holiness in the context of worship and the, and the sacrifices, and he always had to provide a holy sacrifice, which meant one that was without moral blemish. So we tend to think of holiness as purity, when in reality, the primary idea of holiness is transcendency, otherness, that God is different from us. For example, Isaiah 63, we read of the seraphim who are without sin, in the temple of God right now saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God um, of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Brothers and sisters, these seraphim are amazed right now at God, not because he's morally pure. They're morally pure. 
What's to be amazed about? But what's amazing about God is he's different. He's not part of creation. He is above it. He created it. And therefore, he's not part of it. And therefore, he's something other than what you and I can imagine, much less behold in this state of mortal flesh. In fact, Tozer, describing God's transcendency, wrote these words. When the prophet Ezekiel saw heaven opened and beheld visions of God, he found himself looking at that which he had no language to describe. What he was seeing was wholly different from anything he had ever known before. So he fell back upon the language of resemblance. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire. And that is why, brothers and sisters, when man is in the presence of God, we are undone. Luke 5, we read of Peter coming to the apprehension that Jesus is God. And at that moment, we read in Luke 5, 8, his words, he fell down on his face and said, depart from me, for I am, I am, sin, I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now that is why in Revelation 1, 17, when John saw a theophonic manifestation, okay, a manifestation of God, which is what a theophany is, he, we read that when, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And so when we think of God's, character of holiness i want you to think always first and foremost of his transcendency his otherness his awesomeness and yet ironic that god's justice doesn't flow from his transcendency it flows from his moral purity amazing so when we talk about god being a just god we begin by recognizing that god's justice flows out of his holiness Specifically, his moral purity. 1 Timothy 6.16, speaking of God, Paul wrote that he alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. That's literal, and the implication behind that is he is morally pure. There's absolutely no sin in God. No marring, no nothing imperfect. He is sinless. And then the text says, whom no man has seen or can see. That's why when Moses said, God, show me your glory, God said, no man can see me or live. If you and I gazed upon the glory of God's holiness, his moral purity, not just his transcendency, but his moral purity, we would die. No man can see it. James 1.17, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. He's the God of purity with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. There is no sin in God, nothing imperfect. God is perfected. He is the essence of uh, perfection. And what we mean by perfection, what the Bible means by perfect is without sin. God is perfect, sinless. And because of that, notice lastly, 1 John 1, 5. There's a consequence, and this is the, the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. He's, he's without sin. And in him, in his proximity, within his grasp, where he is, there is no darkness at all. God cannot endure sin. Because of his nature, God cannot allow sin to be in his presence. And so when it comes to sin, the Bible says God does, the first thing he does is he destroys it. He judges it. He condemns it. 
And then sometimes he cleanses it. He removes it. Let me explain both of those options for you real quickly. First of all, because of who God is, his character, his moral purity, we know that therefore God must judge sin. 1 John 3, 4, uh, in essence says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now, God's law is his character. It's, it's the overflow of his character. So sin is falling short of God's character. And brothers and sisters, when mankind, when, when, when God is in the presence of that which falls short of his character, God destroys it. Proverbs 6, 16, there are six things which the Lord hates, yet seven which are an abomination to him. An abomination of God is something that, that God damns, destroys, condemns. And so we read in Romans 1, 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. Brothers and sisters, a just God will always, our God who's just, a perfect God without sin, will always damn sin, will always judge it. That's what we mean when we say God is a just God. He's a just judge. He will always destroy sin, always. And thus, brothers and sisters, there is a moral law that comes as a result of God's character. And that moral law is Romans 6, 23, where we read, The wages of sin is death. It's a moral law. That's established because of, by virtue of God's nature. The wages of sin is death. If you have one sin, you must die. And death there is hell. You must die if there's just one sin. Yet, brothers and sisters, in the face of sin, sometimes God chooses to cleanse it. That's what the sacrificial system was all about. This is a protracted introduction, but just follow with me here, okay? Sometimes God deigns to, to cleanse it. But get this, to cleanse it, God first must destroy it. Did you understand that? If God's a just God, he can't just take someone's sin and, and ignore it. He must first damn the person and then destroy them, wipe them out, and then cleanse them. You see, there's a problem with that. You can't do both. That's what the sacrificial system was all about to teach us. How can a just God do that? Listen to, to Leviticus 5. If a person sins, does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was even unaware, he didn't even know about it, still he's guilty and shall bear his punishment, which is hell. But in this case, God gave this glorious blessing. He is then to bring to the priest a ram without defect. In other words, a morally blameless ram. From the flock, according to your valuation, for a guilt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his error in which he sinned unintentionally and did not know it, and it shall be forgiven him. In other words, I've got sin. I'm, I'm mindful of it, or I, don't, or I know I've sinned, but I don't know where. I'm a sinner. So what can, what can you do? Well, you can go and get a spotless lamb, bring it to God, transfer your sin to it, and then God will damn that. And then we can be forgiven. Isn't that glorious? Brothers and sisters, that's what the cross was all about. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
There's this glorious transfer taking place through the work of Jesus Christ. God became man. He did not sin. And there, as a sinless sacrifice, God, and the reason why they have to be sinless, think about it, because if, if, if you had sin, you have to die. So as much as I might love you and want to die for your sin, I got my own sin to pay for. So it has to be sinless. So God took, God became man. He died on that cross in the place of you and me. So he got our judgment. We get his life. Okay? Um, glorious as that is. He is. That ultimately is why, brothers and sisters, the sacrifice of Christ had to be public. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, the sacrifices were all private. Okay? You, um, women never saw it. Gentiles could never see it. Because you'd go to the temple or the tabernacle, and if you're worshiping, you'd go inside. And there on the, on the north side of the altar, you'd, you'd slay the animal after laying your hands upon its head. Confessing your sin, transferring it, you'd slay the animal, and then they'd do the, the priest would take over. And all of that would be done in the presence of the priests, and on, in the temple, there'd be more than one worshiper in the presence of other worshipers. But that's all who would see it. They were all private. But when it came to the cross of Jesus Christ, what do we read? He was, sat, he was crucified outside the gate. He was crucified out so that the world could behold it. And that's what we get in Romans chapter 3, 25, where we read these words. Speaking of Christ, whom God displayed publicly. That's the emphasis. This is public. God, God is making a statement at this cross, brothers and sisters. Because let me tell you something. Inherent in the grace of God is a massive problem. If God forgave you for your sin, the problem is, he's therefore, it raises the suspicion, that he's not a just God. Because a just God must damn sin. Do you understand that? That's, that's the issue. So how can God, being a just God allow you into his presence. That's a conundrum. But that's the glorious wisdom of God, a wisdom that the world does not comprehend. But we in Christ do, right? First Corinthians. Well, what is that wisdom of God? God displayed Christ publicly as a wrath-removing, a propitiation, a wrath-removing sacrifice in his blood through faith. So he displayed Christ to be a wrath-removing sacrifice if you and I will just by faith trust that as our sacrifice. This was to demonstrate his justice. So the cross of Christ was given to demonstrate the righteousness or the justness of God. How? Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. I mean, you look back in, in your life, you go, man, I've, there were, for me, I became a Christian when I was 18. How many sins did I commit before they were forgiven and God never condemned me? Where's a just God? So when our text is, is, is struggling, God's people are grappling with the justice of God, there's a reason they're grappling because there is, a, and God sees it, because there's this potential charge that can be leveled against God. He sinned and was not immediately damned. You're not a just God. You're an unjust God. So notice, God publicly displayed it because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins. And he's doing it for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness, his justice at the present time. Christ or God had Christ crucified in public to demonstrate God is a just God. He punishes sin. All sin, every sin, will always be punished with death. But 
amazing wisdom of God in that sacrifice on the cross. God not only demonstrated that he's just, but he's also gracious. He not only was declared the just, but also the justifier, the forgiver, the cleanser of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Now that's the gospel. You understand that. From this, brothers and sisters, I want you to see that when we speak of God being just, there's always, in the ex- there, there's always the expectation either of condemnation or wrath for the one guilty of sin, in the case of, but in the case of the saved, there's the expectation of forgiveness and purification. A just God could not do anything else. Now, brothers and sisters, that is the background. That when God's people came in this passage to say that God is not just, now we understand what they're saying. They're saying God is inconsistent with his character. God's character is being violated. God is sinning. Okay, so a quick review. Last week we then began with the indictment, verse 17. The indictment was basically this, because God's people at this point lapse back to a performance-based relationship with God. Remember that? Two relationships. Either it's going to be based on performance or Christ and therefore a relationship. Either you relate to God as his children or as uh, ones who have to earn his love. As ones, he's already loves you or you have to earn it. Those are the only two ways you're going to relate to him. Well, when you and I rebuild what was once destroyed, lapse back into moralism, what do we do? We approach God and think of God on the basis of performance. So they sat there and realized, man, we've been pretty good people. And look what we got. We got difficulty in our lives. We got a famine. We got drought. We got all these horrible things. And then they looked at the wicked and they saw their ease. Psalm 73, their ease and their easy life. And they said, foul. Their problem wasn't why does God, why do uh, bad things happen to good people? Their biggest problem was, God, why are you blessing wicked people? Why do good things happen to bad people? That was their massive problem. So they accuse God of three things. God is silent in the face of evil. He delights in evil men and women. He is uncaring, not near, nor is he involved in our lives. That was last week. That's what they were saying about God. Wow, what an indictment. But then we also saw 17a, the provision for, the, uh, for that um, indictment. And what is that? The grace of God. I don't know what other title to give you, but brothers and sisters, the fact that God could be wearied with your sin... What does that imply about God? It implies grace. If God wasn't good or kind or, 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 or gentle, if God wasn't loving, the moment you sin, you'd be snuffed out. So the very fact that, you, that, that we read God is weary with his people's sin should tell you he is a loving, gracious, incredible God who, doesn't, who in his weariness does not um, condemn But he sent Malachi to discipline and to disciple and to teach. And then that, brothers and sisters, brought us then finally to the fact of God's judgments last week, or justice last week, where in essence the message is this. You want justice? Be careful what you pray for, because God's going to give it. Now, after describing the prophecy of John the Baptist and Christ, that's the climax. Judgment's coming, guys. You want judgment? It's coming. Um, it's coming. And from this, we saw two principles about God's justice. And that is one, God's timing when it comes to the administration of his justice is not our own. This is last week. His timing is not our, not our own, man. We want it now, God. We're like Jonah. We're on that hill looking at wicked people saying, God, get them now. 
Come on, God. And he doesn't do it. Instead, he gives them money and wealth and ease and wonderful homes and cars and an easy life. And then you look at yourself in the mirror and go, God, you love me. What's going on? Give it now. Come on, God. Damn them. Our time is not, not, not God's. And in truth, God's much more gracious than we are. Secondly, principle was when it comes to God's justice, it always will begin with the household of God. That's why when Malachi said, when they said, give us justice, God, Malachi said, are you sure? In essence, you want justice? You want it? You want it, Christian? Here it is. And that then leads us naturally to the uh, fourth point, the consequent, or yeah, the consequence of God's justice. Malachi 3 through 5. So let's attack this this morning. This is now my sermon. That's the introduction over. Hopefully you're on the same page. Now let's dive in. Verse 3. First of all, as it pertains to God's people in the present age, God's justice works for our moral purity. Understand this important principle. You want God to be just. I want a just God. Malachi says, you want justice, you're going to get it. God's justice, and when it comes to his people, will always result in their growth in grace, their moral purity. Notice verse 3. And he will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in, in righteousness. You want justice? This is it. God's a smelter. God is a, a, a purifier. And he's therefore, his justice is going to purify. Now, brothers and sisters, when it comes to God's justice, when you ask, where's God's justice? Get this. God's justice right now is actively being met out in this world in your own life by, by uh, uh, sanctifying you, by transforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. I said something important, so make sure you don't miss this, this point. God's justice always results in the life of God's people in the context of tempering grace. You want justice? Justice, one, will always begin with God's people. And in this age, God's justice, if you want to see it, look at your own life and you will see God's justice worked out as he tempers you. And that's the very reason we struggle with God's justice. God's justice in this land always begins with a household of faith where they are tempered in the flame of affliction, um, purifying them, refining them. That's why Habakkuk prayed, why dost thou look with favor on those who do deal treacherously? Why are thou silent? Why would he say that? Because he's looking at his life and going, God, my life's not good like theirs. Why are you doing this? That's our biggest problem, brothers and sisters. God is just. And when you and I say, where's your justice? You don't realize that at the root of your question is the very issue of God's justice. God's justice is being met out in your own life and that you're being tempered. The rest of your Christian life, all of your Christian life, you and I are being tempered. God's always at that work. A just God could do nothing less. Amazing. What a misunderstanding we have what Habakkuk had in Jeremiah. God's justice will always first be applied to his people. God's justice will always result in cleansing when it comes to his people. Which means trial, difficulty, and hardship. Did you get that? Notice the language. He will sit as a smelter, a refiner of silver and gold. This guy's job was he refined silver. We think of a blacksmith, but blacksmiths don't work with silver. Okay, This is a jeweler. He's a smelter, a refiner of silver and gold. And a purifier, 
Though the word is used of gems, the word has strong moral overturns. So he's a purifier to morally make us pure of silver. Now notice the focus here is on silver. And the main reason is because silver in Malachi's day was more precious than gold. Okay? But there's another reason, I'm sure. And that is why if you, look at the, if you, uh, if you study the, the, the smelting process of silver and gold, what you find is that silver, one, at the time was more precious so it speaks of God's precious view, God's view of you. Secondly, it also speaks of a process which is much more difficult than smelting gold. Silver is more difficult than gold. So that, that metaphor, that picture is so beautiful because it describes the value God views you with. You are so precious to him, you're silver, but it also denotes the, the arduous, the difficulty that is going to be involved in God trying you, shaping you, molding you, cleansing you. When I was in, in Florida, my last church, there was a guy in our church who was a jeweler. I've shared this a little bit with some of you in, in the past. He was a jeweler, and he invited me to his office. He was a solar, and if you know anything about that, that name, you know that they're world-renowned jewelers, that name. And well, he was one of them. And so I went to, his, to this massive building where they had these, these, I would say, hundreds of rooms, and every one of them were jewelers. It was this massive building in downtown Miami filled with jewelers. I went to his office, and I think in preparation of my visit, he didn't clean the previous day. So when we got there, he said, hey, nice to see you. And once all the pleasantries were done, he gave me a broom and said, clean my office. And he got his broom. And we began sweeping every, he goes, you got to get everything. Because when I work with, with gold, this was gold, um, filings fall off. You can't see them. And they're all over the ground. So we need to sweep. So he, we swept it. And I wonder if he didn't put some, you know, rat, du, du, dust rats, what are they called? You know, we, we had a pile of dirt. And he got his crucible. He put the entire pile that we swept up in that crucible and then stuck it onto the fire. And immediately, of course, the, the, the rust, what are, they, what are they called? Dust rats. Dust what? Eh? Dust bunnies. The dust bunnies immediately died. You know, they burnt up. And what was really fascinating, brothers and sisters, is whatever impurities were in there, they had different um, melting rates or different burning rates. And so it would it would burn, and then it would be nothing. Just this the, just this liquid in there. And then it would burn, and then it would be nothing. And then it would burn, and it would be nothing. And at one point, he pulled it off. It had been in there for a long time. He pulled it off, and he said, "What do you think?" I said, it "Looks pretty good." But there was this there was this haze on the gold. He goes, it's not done. I said, seriously? He goes, no. He put it back in. And we waited and waited. And finally, another burn, another flame. And then he looked at it and he took it off and said, what do you think? And I looked down there and it was as shiny as mirror. I looked in there and immediately I saw me. And he said, Greg, that, that is how in the old days they knew that silver or gold was refined when they could see the reflection in it. So the metaphor is incredible. Brothers and sisters, God's choosing a metaphor. God is after his reflection in you. But it's a process that's arduous and difficult and hard where you and I are going to go through these horrible, horrible moments of our lives where God is smelting us and purifying us of the sin which is stopping us from being all that God would have us to be. And thus, brothers and sisters, from this you must see that trial and difficulty in the life of the child of God is not there on account of God's wrath or anger. That's the beautiful thing. Because we're performance, we put our performance, if you think for one moment God is angry at you and that's why bad things are happening to you, that is a sure telltale sign you are living not by grace, but by morality, by your works. That's a performance-based mindset. 
A performance-based mindset says you get what you deserve. Brothers and sisters, what do you deserve? Hell. So you're not going to get it. In grace, you get what you don't deserve, which is the glorious uh, salvation, forgiveness, relationship, uh, a communion with God. So with that mentality, that's the only time we would think, man, God's angry at me. How do I know? Because bad things are happening to me. That is not a sign of God's anger. That's a sign of God's justice. And his justice worked out in this land today is in, more, is in uh, uh, purifying. This is what Malachi is saying. Purifying, molding, and shaping you, his silver, his gold. So get this, guys. It's, it's not on account of God's anger or wrath, but on account of his purifying justice. Because he loves us. His justice not, does not condemn us, but transforms us into his image. That's the point of Malachi 3, 3 in the context. You want justice? Verse 3 is God's justice. That's the whole point. That's the flow. Where is a just God? You want justice? I do. Verse 3. God is purifying you. That's justice. That is God's active justice in your, your life. And does he love his people? Are you the object, if you're going through trial and difficulty, if you're, if you're the silver or the gold in the crucible, does that mean God doesn't love you? Exact opposite. Malachi 1-2, I have loved you. What's the objective of, of, of purifying silver gold? It's because God wants you to, to bear his image. It has nothing to do with a lack of love. It has everything to do because of God's love. Whom he loves, he disciplines, Hebrews 12 says. Amazing. And that brings us, therefore, would you notice the short-term goal, verse 4. The earthly goal of, of, verse, of, of our smelting process, of God's justice worked out in your life, verse 4. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former times, as in the times of, of Moses. Now, we've already looked at this word pleasing three or four weeks ago. That language is covenantal language, which is not referring to an emotional response of the part of God. But rather, it is referring to... Um, it's a description of being, of, of a person being in the place of salvific blessing. I'll say it again. Pleasing is not a sign of, it's not an emotion that God's, you know, upset. It's a, it's a covenantal language which speaks of a person being in the place of salvific blessing. So, the valley of weeping becomes a spring. That's because God's pleased. Psalm 84. One's delight is nothing less than the Lord. Psalm, I'm sorry, Isaiah 58. Where those who should be the most burdened in this life don't faint, but mount up with wings like eagles. That's the, that, that is the blessings, the, that is God being pleased. So brothers and sisters, he's saying, so God is molding and shaping you so that you would delight in God. So that your joy and glory in life would not be money or wealth or power or your home, but Christ and Christ alone. That's what God's after. And what's he doing? Because he's just. He can't endure sin in his people. Therefore, his justice means he's always going to be molding, shaping, um, heating the vessel a little bit. So that you and I would not faint, but cling to Christ. That's the whole point. Cling to Christ. That's what a just God does. He brings us to the point of our greatest blessing. What's your greatest blessing, brothers and sisters? When you are clinging to Christ. Greatest blessing. Greatest gift I could ever as a preacher give to you would be somehow that, that, that I could encourage you or make you cling to Christ. Greatest blessing any, any, any Christmas gift could ever be. The greatest blessing you get from a job, name it. Would have you cling to Christ more. And that's what God's justice does in the life of his people. Now, but we're not done. 
That's amongst his people. Notice secondly, verse 5. As it pertains to the non-Christian, God's justice will damn the sinner. It's either going to purify his people or it's going to damn the sinner. Notice verse 5. Then, after my justice is, is demonstrated, verses 3 through 4, in the life of your sanctification... I'm going to show you another way my justice is demonstrated. Verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Now this is condemnation. This is not discipline. This is damnation. I will draw near to you for damnation. And I will be, in, 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 I will be a swift, in the Hebrew, an expert. I will be an expert witness against the sorcerers, which if you do a study of sorcery in Scripture, it ultimately is the worship of Satan. God is going to be a swift condemnation to those who worship Satan against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a progression. Just like Paul's progression, Romans 3, 10 through 19. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm sorry, 10 through 18. Do you know the passage? There's none righteous. No, not even one, right? How does he end? That entire 10 through 18, Paul ends a little bit more vociferous than here, okay? But he ends the same place Malachi ends. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Brothers and sisters, everything I've said before is, 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 is less than this massive sin. No fear of God before their eyes, Romans 3, 10 through 18. Likewise here, how does Malachi end? No fear of God. We're not talking about rebellious Christians who sort of like their sin more than God at the moment. We're talking about people who aren't saved. We're talking about goats. We're talking about non-saved people. So God, you want justice? God's justice will always, outside of his people, result in condemnation and wrath. And if you began last week with me, that's what we ultimately want when it comes to the non-believer. Now you go, really? Would you say that, preacher? Guys, I'm not suggesting that, that that's my, my, my will. But every time you say, why do good things happen to bad people? That's what you're saying. Whether you realize or not, God damn them. Damn them to hell now. Get it over with. I don't want to see that wealthy person doing well. Now you and I would say, well, I don't want it that bad. I mean, I just want God to, you know, take them down a notch or two. Take away their money or their cars. Give their money and cars to me, you know, I mean, that's what we're saying, right? God can make me wealthy on this side of the grave. Don't give it to them. They don't love you. I mean, we don't want their damnation. We just don't want their success. We want us to be successful. Brothers and sisters, you are you're thinking performance and you're thinking completely worldly. When God gives justice to a non-believer, if you ever feel yourself saying, God, I want justice, you are ultimately praying for the condemnation. That's what Jonah did. At least Jonah was honest about it. Lord, damn them, you know? Uh, kill him. And then he has that little plant come up and he's, you know, I wish it was born, you know. Yeah, just like a three-year-old, you know. Big lip out, I just see him sitting there, right? Brothers and sisters, that's what you and I are doing all the time when we say, I don't want good to come to bad people. Brothers and sisters, God's answer to that is very simple. One, you want justice, it's going to begin with the household of God, which means your tempering, your sanctification. But if you really want it in the world's eye, in the world, ultimately, brothers and sisters, that's condemnation. Now, when's this condemnation going to happen? Well, according to Scripture, twofold. One, when man dies. When the non-believer dies, that's when they'll be damned. Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. 
But ultimately, what is in reference in verse 5, ironically, verse, uh, one in, uh, verse 1 goes to the cross. Well, that, brothers, for you and I uh, benefit. Ju- uh, the way we are saved is through the cross of Jesus Christ, where we become his children, justice is, is met out, and now God is going to wean us off of our love affair with this world. But now we get to verse 5. The second way his justice is vented is by condemnation. Nothing less. Um, you say, well, when's it going to happen? Well, when they die or ultimately at the last judgment, Romans 2, 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. That's ultimate justice. Every time you pray for justice, brothers and sisters, that is where justice is going to come. It's the second coming of Christ. So we come from the first coming, verse 1, for us. Second coming, that's ultimate justice ultimate you'd say well brothers and sisters why is God waiting why doesn't God take their lives now I mean why do good things happen to bad people why can't God not give good things to bad people and therefore have them die now well there's an answer for that and it's it's, you're not going to like the answer it's in verse 4 of chapter 2 notice the text do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance you don't like the answer because, brothers and sisters, God's more gracious than you and me. Most of our life is spent like Jonah, right? Now, we ultimately are not saying I want them to go to hell. Who would say that? But that's what you're saying. I want justice, God. I want it now. Well, Malachi says he's given it to you. It begins with you, and he's molding and shaping you. The very thing that you're using to, 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 to uh, uh, cast dispersions against God, if you love me, you'd care f- uh, for me. He is caring for you. The greatest care he gets you is to have you delight and depend upon Christ. So he is working out his just will right now. So don't confuse trial and difficulty with an angry God. Confuse trial and difficulty with a loving God who is a just God, who therefore is exercising his justice. But for the non-believer, the only reason why God doesn't damn them now is because of his grace. Do you understand that? God is giving them grace that they might have the chance to repent, the chance to follow God, the chance to turn from their wicked ways. Read it, Romans 2, verse 4. Do you think lightly of his riches, kindness, and forbearance, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Think of it in this way. Jonah, if he got his way, think of this. This sounds like just a Bible story. Jonah's on that hill overlooking Nineveh, God forgave it, and he's upset. So he's there with his lip out going, man, God, I have, ca- I have reason to be uh, perturbed unto death. You didn't damn those people, right? Is it conceivable that, let's say, of that, it's, this, it's the capital city, brother and sister, so there must have been hundreds of thousands of people there. Is it conceivable that a thousand of those people migrated west? Is it? Shake your head. No or yes? Yeah? Is it conceivable that of those thousand people who migrated west who weren't killed, they migrated west instead? They became Germans. They intermarried with Germans and French and Spanish and English and Naaman. Is it possible? Is it therefore possible that if God had given Jonah his way, some would not be in this room right now? Think about that. Had Jonah in his silly sin got what he wanted, some of you would not be here loving Jesus right now. 
That crazy, isn't it? This is crazy. Secondly, if God did act the way Jonah wanted, how many here would, would actually be saved? Every covenant child, praise God, but not me. I was redeemed when I was 18 years old. I had 18 years of sinning before I was saved. If God gave justice like Jonah wanted, like you and I want, why do good things happen to bad people? I would, I would have been in hell a long, long time ago. So brothers and sisters, praise God for his goodness. Praise God that he's more gracious than you and me. Praise God that his grace is the very reason we have a problem with his justice. Come on, God, I'm thinking worldly here, performance-based. Get him. Brothers and sisters, God's answer to a people who are mechanistic in their walk with God, which means performance-based Christianity, his, his third or his fourth exhortation to them, all you who want justice, I assure you I'm a just God. And it's met out in two ways. One, condemnation of the wicked. And two, sanctification, which is the smelting process for the Christian. We end with these words. God's assurance in light of his justice. Actually, James Montgomery Boyce, read that. I won't take the time. Fantastic quote. Read it and soak it in. It's an incredible statement. That being said, notice God's assurance in light of his justice. Verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. This is a, a, a bridge verse. Verse 6 belongs with verse 7, but also belongs in the previous section. So it's a bridge verse. It closes out our section and it begins the next. So next week we're going to start in verse 6. Or the next time that we look at this, right? So verse 6. Um, but it closes out this past uh, section. And, and this is what the glorious close is. I dare say in a congregation of this size, there are some of you just this past week or month have, who've curled your fist against God and said, God, unfair. And my sermon today hasn't assuaged your sense of unfair. But maybe it's felt, made you feel a little uh, condemned. You've got to be kidding me. I, you're, you're telling me I'm, I'm praying for the death of people? Brothers and sisters, if that is you before God this day, and I dare say it's probably some of you, you've had those horrible thoughts, if not today, if not last week, and in your lifetime. What's God think of you today? What kind of a Christian are you? Verse 6, brothers and sisters, I don't change. The same love with which I loved you that saved you from your, gra- from your sin is the same love with which you are, I, I continue to love you with. Even though you and I have committed foul revolt against God. This is ministry to those people who are hearing Malachi going, whoa, I'm the man. I'm, I, I stand condemned before God. I, wow, you know, forgetting verse 1-2, chapter 1-2, God loves me. I stand uh, condemned. God comes and says, I don't change. Trust my character. I don't change. Therefore, you're not going to be a consumed Christian. You're my, you're the apple of my eye. And yes, you and I may sin and we may sin grievously, but get this, brothers and sisters, you will always remain the apple of God's eye. Malachi 1-2, I have loved you. So don't you dare fear. Don't you leave here depressed. Leave here exalting and glorifying and praising God for the glorious grace which will never change by which he has saved you. Let's pray. Father God, we bow before you this day. And Lord, I'm one, I'm sure, of many here this day who has had a problem with the good you give the bad. Who does, Lord, struggle not much more than the first question, Lord, why do bad things happen to good people? I know there's no good one good. Romans 3 is very clear. But God, we struggle, I struggle with this 
with this reality that you withhold punishment to people who don't deserve it. And Father, in our wretchedness and our sinfulness, we don't see the big picture, and we find ourselves feeling that way. Thank you for this revelation, which takes that head on. Lord, these are symptomatic problems of people living in the age in which we, we live, the age between miracles, the age where we're living in that valley. And these are the struggles that your people are going to struggle with. So we come before you this day thanking you that you do not change. That though this struggle has been felt by your people throughout, waged by your people throughout redemptive history and now world history, Lord, you have never changed. And therefore, your love remains just as directed and just as fierce and just as focused and just as overwhelming on us as it was when we were saved. God, thank you for your goodness and grace. Grant us the grace as your people to have maturity in our thinking to understand that your justice will always result in difficult lives, not because of your hatred or wrath, but because of your love. And therefore, Lord, may we not repine, but may we rejoice in the love of Christ. Because, Lord, we know that the more we understand your love, the more we will love. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.